Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you look around you in the world and see different people and different occupations, it quickly becomes clear that different jobs have different dress requirements. Sometimes this is so people can be easily identified. Think of an airplane pilot or someone working in a restaurant. Their uniform or their clothing identifies them who they are. Others, though, wear special clothing to protect them in the environment in which they work. Think of firefighters or police, a police SWAT team. They have special gear to keep them safe. Well, what people wear often reflects who they work for and what kind of conditions they are going to face or what they can expect to face in their day-to-day activities. What about Christians? Do we have special clothing that identifies us, that shows the world around us who we are? While While we certainly should wear modest clothing, we don't have a particular uniform. It's not as though as someone, as you walk down the street, that someone can look at you and say, well, there is a Christian because they're wearing a Christian outfit, a Christian uniform. But what about protective clothing? This is where Ephesians 6 comes in and Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God. As you look around you in church this morning, do you see anyone wearing armor? Do you see anyone here with the helmet or a breastplate or a sword at their side? Does this mean that no one here is obeying God's instructions? Right away, that brings us to the obvious point that this armor that Paul is speaking of, this is not a physical armor that we put on. But Paul here is going to describe and to commend to us a spiritual armor. Yet the question remains for us this morning. As we are here as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, have we put on... Are we wearing the armor that God is giving us? Are we wearing all of the armor that God is giving us? Maybe you're here this morning and you wonder, is all this armor really necessary? Hasn't Christ defeated Satan there on the cross 2,000 years ago? You might be saying to yourself, I am resting in the finished work of Christ. I trust that he is going to take care of you or to take care of me. And yet, as true as these things are, and also because of those questions that can arise, whether or not we need this armor, I want to begin this morning and begin this series that I hope to do, at least part of it, with you, by considering the basic question, why do we need the armor of God? So why do we need the armor of God? That's our theme this morning. We'll see this in two basic uh, answers, question, two points. First of all, because of the great possessions and calling that we have. And second, because of Satan and his evil spirits. So why do we need the whole armor of God? Because of our great possessions and calling, and because of the great enemy that we face, because of Satan and his evil spirits. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, is a transition here. And Paul, as he's reaching the end of this letter to the Ephesians, he wants to bring one more thing to their attention, and through them to the Christian church as a whole. Verse 10 begins with, finally, my brethren. We can also translate that as, what remains, my brethren. And Paul goes on there to give this command. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
A few verses later, to put on the whole armor of God. Paul, in light of everything else that he's written so far earlier in the letter, because of the, because of the dangers that he's about to identify, he is giving us this command. He's telling us that we need to be equipped. And here, as we consider our great possessions and calling, we need to go back earlier in Ephesians and to see what Paul has been telling us. Be helpful for you to have your Bibles open if you don't have them open already. And turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. We see in chapters 1 through 3 the riches that believers have in Christ. So Ephesians 1, if you look at verse 3, or read verses 3 to 7. And there Paul is telling, or writing to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. And if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, there Paul begins to describe what we were like before conversion. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He goes on in verses 2 and 3 to describe what we were like before God made us alive. How we were followers of Satan. Then again in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. One study Bible comments on these verses. That the believer's union in and through Christ Jesus, this implies that we already have a share now in this riches that Christ has accomplished. That already now in this life we get to enjoy something of what Christ has done. The forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our hearts. And we can look forward to a great eternity with Christ. Verses 14 through 18 in chapter 2. Goes on to speak of peace with God through Christ. Verses 19 to 22, we have Christ as the cornerstone. And believers are part of this body, this temple, which is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. To go on to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul shares with the Ephesians that God had called him and made him a minister, made him an ambassador to preach the good news of the gospel. He says there, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul ends chapter 3 with a beautiful God-glorifying prayer. See that in verses 14 to 21. 
For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his power, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Do you see how Paul in these chapters, and there's much more that I, I've passed over, but the riches that believers have in Christ. You need to ask yourself this morning, are these your riches? Are these descriptions that we have read together, do these apply to you? Not because you have deserved it or because you have earned it. Because you have turned from your sins and turned to Christ. Because the things that we have read together, these apply to every believer. If you, by God's grace, have turned to Christ, then all these descriptions are true of you. Now to come back to the question at hand, why do we need the armor of God? Now, do you think that Satan wants you to believe that Christ's blood is enough to cover your sins? That Christ's blood is sufficient to make you right with God? No. Does Satan want you to know the width, length, depth, and height of the love of Christ? No. Does Satan want you to think and look forward with excitement to how God the Father himself is going to show you the exceeding riches of Christ in heaven? No. Satan is going to do everything that he can to keep you from going to Christ. But if you have gone to Christ, Satan is going to do everything he can to keep you from enjoying these blessings, to keep you from rejoicing in these blessings that we have in Christ. These are the riches that we have, and Paul goes on in Ephesians 4, through six to build on this. We can summarize this as because of what you have in Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, therefore live as a Christian. And Paul's going to go on, as we'll see, to, to apply this to every part of our lives. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are, were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Satan hates unity. He hates humility. He hates gentleness. He hates patience. He's going to attack us in all, in all these areas. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, Paul goes on to urge us to use the gifts God has given us, being firmly grounded in the doctrines of grace for the growth and edification of the body and love, 
And here again, if Satan cannot make us deny Christ, he's going to do his best to make us lazy Christians, to make us poor witnesses in this world, to make us ineffective Christians. In the rest of chapter 4, Paul tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Not to grieve the Holy Spirit by going on loving and tolerating the sins that Paul goes on to list. Sins that we find in verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that means loud arguing, evil speaking, and malice or bitterness. As we look in our hearts, are these not sins that all of us can struggle with to some degree or another? Are these not the kinds of sins that Satan seeks to promote? That Satan encourages us, encourages us to do. Well, Paul continues in chapter 5, and for the sake of time, I'll, I'll summarize. Verses 1 through 7, we are to walk in love. Verses 8 to 14, we are to walk in light. Verses 15 to 21, we are to walk in wisdom. And Paul, and then he, Paul turns to the topic of marriage. How our marriages ought to be a picture of this relationship between Christ and the church with husbands sacrificially denying themselves and loving their wives. And with wives loving and submitting to their husbands. Chapter 6, we read of how children ought to obey their parents and how parents, especially fathers, should not provoke them to wrath. The last relationship that Paul deals with is the relationship between servants and masters, or in our context, we'd say employees and employers. And here again, we're urged that if we work for someone to be obedient, to do our best to serve them as we would serve the Lord. Then the employers, if you are a believer, Paul is reminding you that while you might be the boss at work, that you are a servant of Christ. Now we have a responsibility to treat those who work for us with, with kindness and respect and fairness. What do you think of all these areas that Paul is describing here? Has not Satan done so much damage? Is there not so much confusion in the world around us? How much brokenness and pain do we see in, in the areas of marriage and family and work? As we consider our calling and the clear responsibility, the duties that God has given us, do we not need to say, I need this armor. I need God's help to be faithful, to enjoy what God has given me and to be faithful in my calling. Well, there's much more that could be said here, and I encourage you to read the book of Ephesians. Sometimes you look at these books and they seem so big, but in 20 to 30 minutes you can easily read through the whole book, and maybe that's a good project for a Sunday afternoon. Let's go on to our second thoughts and to consider that we need to put on this whole armor of God, not just because of the possessions that we have by grace in Christ and the, the calling that God is laying upon us, but also because of Satan and his evil spirits. We see this particularly in uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. When we think of Satan and evil spirits, what comes to our minds? 
There are many in this world that would deny that Satan even exists. They would deny the existence of, of God, of angels, and of evil spirits. In some ways, you can think of the Sadducees in the days of Jesus who held to some of these same views. But others in this world laugh and joke about Satan. Just think about Halloween and how we see so many houses in our neighborhoods with all these decorations pointing us to suffering, to death, to agony. It's even people who dress up like Satan himself. And when we turn to the Word of God, we see that the Bible never jokes about Satan, how it describes him so soberly, that he is a great enemy. He is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. So we consider the question, why do we need the armor of God? Let's see again Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, and we read there, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And all these in, in different ways is, is describing for us who Satan is and who these evil spirits are. As we go through these, this passage and consider some of these descriptions, we'll focus especially on the devil or, or Satan himself, but this also applies to the other fallen angels. So where did Satan come from? Has Satan always existed? There are other religions in this world that speak of, of two opposing forces. You have the good God, and then you have the evil. And there's always this, this battle that goes on between them. That's not what we find in God's Word. In the beginning or before creation, only God existed. And everything else that exists in this whole universe was made by Him. So this means that also Satan was created by God. Now Satan was created good. He was made upright. You can think of Adam and Eve and, and uprightness and righteousness and holiness. Genesis 1 verses 31 till verse 1 of chapter 2 we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. So there God looked at his creation, looked at everything that he had made, and it was very good. That included Satan before his rebellion. Yet Satan does not stay in that pure and good state. Satan rebelled against God and many angels joined him in this rebellion. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are descriptions of evil earthly kings. Also part of this description that we find in these chapters seem to be references to Satan. That he was not content to be a great angel. He was not content to be in heaven worshipping and praising God. But that he wanted to be God himself. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be looked up to. 1 Timothy 3 makes it clear that the root of Satan's sin was pride. Well, we can be, we're, we're unsure of the exact details of this rebellion. What we find is that Satan and many other angels, they sinned against God. They rose up against them. Because of their sin, they were cast out of heaven. 
and they are condemned to eternal damnation and suffering. So that's his origin. Think of some of the names that we find in God's word of Satan. The names of God tell us a lot about who God is. And the names we have in the Bible of Satan also reveal something of what he is like to us. The most common names are Satan or the devil. Other names or descriptions are the accuser, Belial, the enemy, the evil one, murderer, liar and the father of lies, Lucifer, the tempter, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the great red dragon, the strong man armed, a roaring lion, and that serpent of old. Even these names themselves, they, they show us what we're up against. They're a warning to us. Let's not think lightly of Satan. Let's not underestimate the enemy that we face day by day. We've seen his origin, we've seen some of his names. What is he like? I don't mean his personality, but his nature. Notice, first of all, how Paul begins in verse 12, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not facing a physical opponent that we can see, that we can feel, that we can strike. But Satan, like the other angels, is a spirit, a spiritual being. Satan and his evil spirits have different positions, different in a certain domain or sphere of influence. And God allows them to, to do their work for a time in this world. Verse 12, we read, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Principalities, powers, and rulers all point to someone that have authority. Those that rule over a certain area, those that have strength. And in our spiritual warfare, we are wrestling, we're fighting against the most powerful evil forces that exist in this universe. One unfortunate impact of living in our advanced Western society is that so often we forget these realities. But there's a, there's a God, there's also angels and evil spirits and how they're active in society. Paul identifies Satan as his, and his forces as the rulers of the darkness of this age. How careful we should be not to be not to get involved in the evil practices that we see around us. That we do not put ourselves under his rule. That we don't enter in his domain and, and stay there. Well, then the last phrase, spiritual wickedness in high places. This doesn't mean that Satan is somewhere high above us. But again, this refers to the spiritual realm which they exist and work. But to summarize so far, we could say that we face an enemy with great power, an enemy that is fundamentally evil, an enemy that has great influence in our fallen world. The last area I want to see of, of Satan is his work. The name devil literally means slanderer or accuser, and the name Satan means adversary, someone that's going to resist you. Someone that's going to oppose you. 
As soon as Satan and his followers are cast out of heaven, we see Satan going after God's prized creation in the paradise. Man has been made in the image of God. And since Satan has lost this direct attack against God, Satan now attacks man. We see something of the craftiness of Satan in the Garden of Eden. He comes to Eve with subtle and crafty lies. He begins by, by slightly misquoting scripture. It's so close to what God said, and yet it's, it's different. And there he's seeking to undermine the certainty of God's word. And he goes on to question God's love. He ends by directly contradicting God and encouraging Eve to take the forbidden fruits. We can see the work of Satan as he comes to Christ in the wilderness. And there he, Satan, he has the audacity, the, the courage to attack Christ himself. Here is the Son of God in the flesh, and yet Satan gladly goes to attack him. And there are those three temptations that are recorded for us as one pastor summarizes them. Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt his father's care, to test his father's care, and to bypass his father's way. And throughout God's word, we get more glimpses of Satan at work. Think of the Israelite boys who the Egyptians would take and throw them into the river. Think of Bethlehem in the days of Christ's birth, where King Herod sent out those soldiers to kill all the little boys who were under the age of two. Or think of Satan who comes into the heart of Judas at the Passover feast with Christ and how Judas goes out to betray his friend, his master. We don't just see the work of Satan in God's word. As many of us know all too well, we see also Satan active in the world around us. You can see it in the trafficking and the abuse of women and children. And the utter perversion and darkness that we see in so many movies and TV shows. Do not see Satan hard at work in the killing of unborn children. In the depravity of pornography. In the multitudes addicted to, to alcohol and drugs. And they believe Satan's lie that just, just one more time. Then I'm going to stop. see it in the wars being fought and the confusion around us regarding gender and marriage and sexuality. We live in a world where we can so easily see how Satan seems to be advancing, how many are believing his lies. Yet can we also see the influence and work of Satan in our own hearts, in our own lives? Satan is not just out there, he's also active here. We can struggle with his attacks. Maybe you've, maybe you've been intending to share the gospel with a friend or neighbor. Every time, though, the opportunity arises to, to speak to them of Christ, you become afraid. All these objections rise up in your mind. Maybe you want to defend the Bible and Christianity in college or the workplace. But when the opportunities come to, to make a stand... You're worried because some people might laugh at you and you stay quiet. Maybe when you get up in the morning and you want to start by reading God's word and praying, you find your mind suddenly filled with so many distractions. Even sinful thoughts seem to come rushing into your mind. 
might you struggle to focus on, on, on worshiping God and reading his word. Just giving an example from my own life. Last fall, shortly after we came to Calgary, we had the Lord's Supper. It was planned for the next Sunday. And throughout the week, I found it hard to set time aside to examine myself and to prepare for that. I said, okay, it's Saturday tonight at, at 7 o'clock. I'm going to set time aside and I'm going to you know, read God's Word, go through the form. And exactly at 7 o'clock, something happened. It made me so angry. Something small happened. And then you sit there trying to, to meditate and reflect on God's Word while you're seething in anger. And after a few minutes, I realized how foolish of me. I'm letting Satan attack. Satan is, is seeking to derail me from preparing my heart. Satan wants me to go on in this sinful anger and to take away any of the blessing I might have on the Lord's Day at the Lord's Supper. And to be careful that we don't blame Satan for all our sins. Satan cannot force us to sin. He can only tempt us and encourage us. He's going to try to confuse us, to distract us, to divide us. As believers on this side of eternity, we'll have to struggle, don't we, against that old man, part of that sinful nature that is still living in our hearts. So often the world seems to attract us, to draw us back to the things that we used to engage in and love. But we have a responsibility for our actions, for our reactions. While all believers are completely justified before God by faith in Christ. Being sanctified is a lifelong process. A process in which we need God's help. We need his armor. Well, the devil is wicked. The devil is terrible. And if you hear this morning as someone who has not yet gone to Christ in faith, if you have not turned from your sins and fled to Christ, then this is who you're following. There's only two options in life. Christ is your Lord and you're following Him, or you're still living in the kingdom of darkness, and you're still following after Satan. As you hear these descriptions of Satan, who he is and what he does, I hope your response is that you no longer want to be part of this kingdom. That you recognize how Satan has been influencing you, discouraging you, distracting you. That you too today would cry out to God that God would save you from your sins. That God would break those, those chains of unbelief, those chains of bondage. And that by God's grace you may come to trust in Christ and rest in His finished work. This is so important. Today is the day of grace. Today God is coming to you in the gospel. And he's warning you. That if you do not turn from your sins, you're still falling after Satan. And you'll be eternally under the wrath of God. Cry out to God. Ask him to open your eyes so you see the path you're on. You would see your sin, your guilt, and you'd see Christ as a sufficient Savior. You too would desire the riches of Christ as you read them in Ephesians 1 through 3. 
If you're here as a child of God, I hope you see with greater, greater clarity that you are more convinced than ever that you need this armor. This armor that God is giving to you. This armor that God is calling you to receive and to, to use and to wear. As we consider the great calling to which we are called, as we consider the great threat in which, the great threat we face, we can so easily be discouraged. We can be fearful. How can I, as a, as a weak, fallen person, resist such an enemy? Well, this afternoon, the Lord really wants to see how we don't stand in our own strength. How we cannot do this on our own. How we are to go forward with the power of God to be strong in the Lord. Well, right now, I want to encourage you with some the verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. This helps us to keep the right perspective, even as believers. We read there in verse 20, When he, that's God the Father, wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. If you are a believer, then you are united to Christ. It's interesting that the same, almost the same language that we find of Satan, of these principalities and powers and forces, that Christ is far above them. That our Savior, He has overcome. He has cried out on the cross, it is finished. And He's there in heaven sitting on the throne. And while Satan may be strong, while Satan is going to attack, our Lord and Savior is so much greater. And by His help, by His strength, by His guidance, we can faithfully follow after Him. It should give us great comfort and confidence. Let us all look to Christ, whether it's for the forgiveness of sins or for help to go forward day by day. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come to you we thank you that this morning we can see something of the riches that believers have in Christ, of the great calling to which you have called us. Lord, help us that we would spend time considering this, rejoicing in this, encouraging one another in these glorious realities that Paul has set before us. Lord, this morning also have considered something of our great enemy of the destruction and darkness and evil that he represents and that he seeks to encourage. Lord, help us to, to be on guard for this. Help us to take seriously Satan and his attacks. Help us, Lord, that as those who by your grace have come to believe and to know something of the riches that we have in Christ, we would also look to you for strength and for help.
We'd seek to, to destroy Satan, to eradicate him from whatever parts or footholds that he has in our life. Lord, help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. And help us to put on this whole armor of God, this armor that you so graciously and kindly are giving to us. We pray that you be with us and bless us in this day. Help us to use our time wisely for your honor and glory. We pray that you bring us back again here later this day, that we may hear your word again and worship you, be encouraged by what you give us in and through Christ. Or please forgive our sins. Please wash them away through the blood of Christ. And we ask all these things for Christ's sake alone. Amen. Let's sing in response to 152. Considering the strength, the evil plans, and the vastness of our enemy, we might become afraid. Already here in this Psalter from Psalm 56, it makes it so clear to us that if we are trusting in God, we have no reason to fear.
Our doxology after benediction is Psalter 306, stanzas 3 and 4. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.